0: You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado. It is episode 98 of season 3 episode 163 of this podcast, July 13th, 2021. Our topic today is Old Testament laws of warfare, specifically Deuteronomy chapter 20. Yesterday, or rather two days ago, I recorded a podcast titled War Crimes and Genocide in the Old Testament, and I began to unpack an answer for a pseudonymous uh, reader of the On the Rocks blog uh, essays that I've written over the years. He reached out to me back in January and wanted to know what my position was with regards to the Old Testament standards of warfare. And in light of those standards and those laws, what are we to make of modern atrocities committed in warfare. Is there any such thing as an atrocity in warfare if we have some of the laws that we do and some of the precedents uh, that we perhaps maybe do at first blush appear to have in the Old Testament? And as I said in that podcast episode, there's a lot here and it's complicated and it is hard to understand and Perhaps even harder to explain, and maybe that's the test of whether we really understand it, is if we're trying to explain these things, I happen to believe that we should, as the New Testament says, as Paul the Apostle writes in the New Testament, always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks us for a reason for the hope that lies within us, but we do so with gentleness and respect. I also happen to believe that all Scripture is God-breathed, as we read in the New Testament. All Scripture is God-breathed and suitable for doctrine, for correction for rebuke, for instruction under righteousness, that the man of God might be equipped for every good work, complete and equipped for every good work. There was a recent episode of Doug Wilson's blog and may blog podcast that I listened to last week in which he talked about the Nephilim. And I loved that episode. If you don't follow Doug Wilson's podcast, blog and may blog, or his plodcast as he calls it, Check it out. It is well worth a listen. His episodes are not as long as mine. Typically, his episodes are relatively short, but they are thought-provoking. They're pithy. They're funny. They're insightful. They're interesting. Even if you don't always know how to take him, he has some really good thoughts to contribute, and I would recommend you check out his podcast. I'm a regular listener as of the past year or two, and I've enjoyed it. I've gotten a lot out of it. But The one thing I really want to key in on from his episode about the Nephilim was that he made this point, which I totally agree with, and that is that if we're embarrassed of anything in the Scriptures, it undermines our attitude towards the entirety of God's Word. We should be trying very much to understand and grapple with the whole counsel of God, even the difficult passages. We should be seeking not to conform to the pattern of this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind, that by testing we can know what is the good and perfect and holy will of God. That ought to be our goal. And so even when we come to a difficult passage like Genesis 6, where it appears to be describing something out of a science fiction story, it appears to be describing something out of a J.R.R. R. Tolkien or J.K. Rowling story, even when we come to those kinds of passages, we need to lean in instead of ducking out. And when someone asks us to explain our position on something difficult, a difficult passage, we might not have a position, but that is our prompt to understand those passages as well as we possibly can. And maybe even at a certain point to say, I don't know. I don't understand what this means. I really don't. It could mean this, it could mean that. I don't know. I know that God is holy. I know that he understands it. I know that there are mysteries to some things as we read elsewhere in the Old Testament, wisdom literature. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. It is the glory of kings to seek a matter out. In other words, God sometimes puts us in the position of little kids on Easter morning doing an Easter egg hunt. Sometimes God conceals certain things from the broader understanding of our community around us. He does this in the Old Testament. He does this in the New Testament. He does this in the New Testament in the person of Jesus, where Christ, the Son of God, the only begotten Son of the Father, speaks and teaches often in parables. And sometimes his disciples even get frustrated with him and complain that they don't know what the heck he's talking about. What are you talking about, Jesus? We don't understand this saying, or this is a hard saying. And sometimes he loses his audience, not accidentally, not because he made a mistake and, oops, you know, I, I was talking a little over your guys' heads right there. Sometimes he intentionally says things that are hard, very bluntly, like, for instance, a bit about eating of his flesh and drinking his blood. What? Jesus, that's really weird. Don't know if you know that, but that's a really weird thing to say. And that becomes a sticking point for Romans. Roman citizens, other than the Christians in the Roman Empire, have a real problem with this whole thing of communion. And there's even rumors that go around, malicious rumors, started by people who know better, who just don't like the Christians, but then also believed by naive persons in broader society that early Christianity is cannibalistic. What are you talking about? you eating flesh and drinking blood. You people are cannibals. That's gross. That is immoral. We're not going to tolerate that in our cities. We're not going to tolerate that in our civilization. Here now we have a license to persecute you violently. And they did. The early Roman Empire depending on who the emperor was, the local magistrate was, violently and even mortally persecuted Christians on the basis of such things as that. So also, in the Old Testament, with regards to laws of warfare, it can be difficult to understand what it is that God is purposing by giving some of the commands that he is, particularly if we're not seeking to understand. Not everybody who comes to these passages in our day is coming in good faith. You have to understand that. And you can't hold your own uh, fidelity to God's word hostage to people who are unscrupulous pretenders, people who want to ask the question so as to trip you up, but they're not interested in your answer. They think that there's no answer. They want there to be no answer. They just want to make you feel silly and embarrassed. Don't let... Those people dictate what your understanding of God's word is going to be, which passages you're going to be, uh, like Thomas Jefferson with his Bible, taking the scalpel to and removing because they're difficult or thorny or challenging. Don't let those unscrupulous pretenders dictate for you which of God's words uh, we are living by or at least being transformed in our understanding. Because sometimes, particularly with regards to some of the passages we're going to be talking about as I go through this answer to uh, the uh, Chinese University student who reached out, sometimes we're going to have to study it and realize that this is speaking to an audience in a different context than we are in. This is not speaking to us. Not every command in Scripture Old Testament and New Testament is at us or for us to obey specifically, some of these are here for us to have the broader context and to understand how God related to his people at various points in the transitional history of him bringing a Savior into the world. So without further ado, let's dive into it. We'll talk about this passage in particular. I'm going to read it for you. In the NASB, I usually or almost always go through the ESV, English Standard Version translation of the Bible, but I'm going to try something out. I want to read NASB, New American Standard Bible, and see what it, it has to say in the way that it interprets certain of these passages. So let's go. Starting from the top, Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 1. When you go out to battle against your enemies and see horses, chariots, and people more numerous than you, do not be afraid of them, for Yahweh your God who brought you up from the land of Egypt is with you. When you are approaching the battle, the priest shall come forward and speak to the people. He shall say to them, Hear, Israel, you are approaching the battle against your enemies today. Do not be faint-hearted. Do not be Afraid, or panic, or be terrified by them, for Yahweh your God is the one who is going with you to fight for you against your enemies, to save you. The officers also shall speak to the people, saying, Who is the man that has built a new house, but has not dedicated it? Let him go and return to his house, otherwise he might die in the battle, and another man would dedicate it. And who is the man that has planted a vineyard? but has not put it to use. Let him go and return to his house. Otherwise he might die in the battle and another man would put it to use. And who is the man that is betrothed to a woman and has not married her? Let him go and return to his house. Otherwise he might die in the battle and another man would marry her. Then the officers shall speak further to the people and say, who is the man that is afraid and faint-hearted? Let him go and return to his house Mm -hmm. so that he does not make his brother's hearts melt like his heart. And when the officers have finished speaking to the people, they shall appoint commanders of armies at the head of the people. When you approach a city to fight against it, you shall offer it terms of peace. And if it agrees to make peace with you and opens to you, then all the people who are found in it shall become your forced labor and serve you. However, If it does not make peace with you, but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. When Yahweh your God gives it into your hand, you shall strike all the men in it with the edge of the sword. However, the women, the children, the animals, and everything that is in the city, all of its spoils, you shall take as plunder for yourself, and you shall use the spoils of your enemies, which Yahweh your God has given you. This is what you shall do to all the cities that are very far from you, which are not of the cities of these nations nearby. Only in the cities of these peoples that Yahweh your God is giving you as an inheritance, you shall not leave anything that breathes alive. Instead, you shall utterly destroy them, the Hittite and the Amorite, the Canaanite and the Perizzite, the Hivite and the Jebusite, just as Yahweh your God has commanded you, so that they will not teach you to do all The same detestable practices of theirs which they have done for their gods, by which you would sin against Yahweh your God. When you besiege a city for a long time to make war against it, in order to capture it, you shall not destroy its trees by swinging an axe against them, for you may eat from them, so you shall not cut them down. For is the tree of the field a human, that it should be besieged by you? Only the trees that you know are not fruit trees you shall destroy and cut down so that you may construct siege works against the city that is making war against you until it falls. And I quote. That is Deuteronomy chapter 20 in its entirety in the New American Standard Bible, NASB for short, version, translation. So what did I tell you, right? A difficult passage for us to understand in our day. Now, depending on who your audience is throughout human history, throughout the world, depending on your time and place and context, as you're reading this, you might find yourself in our situation saying, Why, that's rather barbaric. Why, that's really, really rather uncivilized. That's really rather brutal and harsh, God. Why are you allowing all of the men? at a minimum, to be put to the sword if the city refuses to surrender? Why are you allowing the women and the children to be taken as spoils of war if the city falls after having refused to surrender? Why are you allowing, not even allowing, I'm sorry, that's the wrong word, commanding, not allowing, commanding. Why are you commanding that the women and the children be taken as spoils of war if the city refuses to surrender and fights against you. Why are you commanding that some cities that belong to some of these people groups, if they are taken, when they are taken, because God is going to give these cities into your hand, when they are taken, you kill everything that is breathing in those cities. Why are you commanding this, God? Why? Why? Okay pause as we talked about in the previous episode we have to check ourselves before we wreck ourselves we have to pause for a second as we're asking a question like that and consider are we sitting in judgment over God as if we have the more righteous standard we are righteous he is wicked we have it all figured out and we need to instruct God on what is fair and What is appropriate? Or are we confused? Maybe that's the thing. We're confused because we think of these norms and these standards and these laws of war that we live according to and that we expect our armed forces to live according to. We think of those as being derived from the Christian nature of at least our heritage, if not our present national condition, culture. We think of these standards as being predicated on virtue and godliness and goodness. And so why would God upset the apple cart in our understanding by having commanded his people in Deuteronomy 20 to wage war like this? And there's two sets of standards. There's one set of standard for the people groups who inhabit the promised land that God is giving to the children of Israel. And then there's also another standard for cities that are further away, that are not part of that core promised land that God has said to abraham isaac and jacob he would give to his descendants he would give to their descendants rather forever as an an inheritance why does god do this if we come at this passage thinking that perhaps we are correct and god is not correct we're going to be in real trouble not just with this passage not just with deuteronomy 20 this might be a stumbling block for us. In fact, it is a stumbling block. Let's just put the maybe out of it. This is a stumbling block for us and for many. I've had lots of debates with atheists where they draw on this passage and they say, that is evil. What this is describing is slavery. Best case scenario, you come and make war against the city and they surrender and you put everyone in the city to forced labor. That's slavery. That's wrong. That's evil. Slavery is wrong and evil. And why is God commanding that? Don't beg the question. In other words, don't assume that your premise in asking that question is true. How do you know that slavery is evil? What is that based on? Is that based on God's standard of righteousness and wickedness? Or is that based on some standard that you got elsewhere? If you read Mark A. Knowles. The Civil War is a Theological Crisis. And read this other book that I'm reading right now, A Holy Baptism of Fire and Blood by James P. Byrd. Read books like these, and you will quickly find that the debate we have in our day is not a new debate. 150 years ago, Americans, North and South, were wrestling with the question of slavery in America. And abolitionists, who were the most radical, said, if the Bible condones slavery in any form, it violates our elevated importance in liberty, our extra-biblical value, our extra-biblical standard. And we think that liberty is the most important thing, freedom is the most important thing, and anything that violates that or infringes on that is evil. And therefore... We're going to reject the authority of Scripture. We're going to reject the Bible because we are not willing to get in there and figure out what was God saying, what was the mind of God on this issue of slavery. Now, the better biblical scholarship, the more faithful biblical scholarship on the abolitionist side said, well, wait a second. Yes, okay, there is slavery in the Bible, but on what terms? Is there an blank check with regards to, To how a master is allowed to treat his slave? No. Does anything go? No. There are boundaries. There are guidelines. There are limitations. You still have to treat this person who is your slave along certain lines. And also the slavery in the Old Testament that God makes allowances for and the slavery in the New Testament that God makes allowances for is not predicated on a whole race being enslaved and subjugated the way that was the case in the American South prior to the Civil War, prior to emancipation. So that better scholarship said, well, wait a second, if you guys want to appeal to the scriptures as a basis for justifying the continuance of your institution of slavery, you have to embrace what God says about how you are to treat your slaves, and you're not. So you're not abiding by that standard that you're saying, you abide by, you're a hypocrite, you're dishonest. As a general rule of thumb, when you're forced to decide whether to affirm the society around you or to stand on the authority of scripture, stand on the authority of scripture, all other ground is sinking sand. It really is. Being on the quote unquote right side of history, uh, what does that even mean? Mm the right side of history the right side of history apart from god is brutality the right side of history apart from god is what michel foucault says where claims of truth are just power plays the right side of history apart from god is machiavelli's the prince pretend at virtue all the while using that pretense as cover for your own machinations and maneuvers i've studied war a fair amount and i've played a lot of strategy games in which i'm planning campaigns and battles and conquering the world different periods of history in the medieval period and classical period in the renaissance in the age of imperialism In the modern era, I've played a lot of games in which war is the subject, is the theme. I've played a lot of total war games. I've played a lot of nation and civilization building games where war is a necessary part. When you get invaded, when you get attacked, you got to figure out what to do. Are you just going to fold like a poker player who doesn't have any good cards? Or are you going to play? Are you going to ante up? Call. Come at me, bro. You want to invade my country? You're on. I'm going to start by destroying your invading force. Then I'm going to counterattack and I'm going to conquer every last city of yours. And if I can't hold them, I'm going to burn them to the ground. If I can hold them, well now, all your base art belong to us. I've studied war. I have studied Robert Greene's strategies of war. I've studied Sun Tzu's art of war. I've studied the various authors who have been popular in recent years as former Navy SEALs. I've read a lot of biographies by by some of them, autobiographies like the personal memoirs of Ulysses S. Grant, but others being the biographies written by other men of these great military commanders throughout history, Alexander the Great, Genghis Khan, Not all of these men are good men. In fact, a great many of them are not good men at all, but they were very good at making war. And this is the question. By what right do we sit in judgment of the boundaries God puts on war-making in Deuteronomy 20? What gives us the right to sit in judgment? Are we just emoting? We have to be very careful in our context Philosophically, because it's too easy for us to emote on these sorts of things and really not get anywhere in understanding them. It's too easy for us to say, Well, I don't like the way I feel when I read this passage. How does this passage make you feel? Like this is a Rorschach painting, where the greatest possible good that could come from reading Deuteronomy 20 is to find out what's in our hearts and follow our hearts. No. No, 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 no. The purpose of Deuteronomy 20 is to understand the mind of God better, to understand the character of God better. God is the main character of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. The big idea is not to figure out so in-depth who was Joshua, son of Nun, although I like Joshua, son of Nun. The big idea is not to study who is Gideon, mighty warrior. Who, me? No. The the big idea is not... to figure out in detail who is David, son of Jesse, a man after God's own heart. So on, so forth. The main character in all those stories is not any of those men. The main character is God. And if we don't read the text with that in view, we cannot understand what it is that we're reading. We'll get lost in the details and we'll get puffed up with trivia. I have zero interest in virtue signaling about this. I don't need to prove to you how much contempt I hold for popular notions of morality, which change more often than my underwear. I have no interest in virtue signaling to you on how firmly I stand on the text and the scriptures like I am the super spiritual machismo guy who's just going to flip the world the bird and the scriptures are my excuse to do that. Genuinely, at the end of the day, at the beginning of the day, what I want is for every thought that I have to be taken captive. So then when I have opinions on policy present, things that are being proposed in this country, and this is a country which at least ostensibly still involves representative government where I elect representatives or am part of electing representatives who then are going to vote to make war sometimes to make war in certain ways sometimes. I'm going to vote for people who are going to be in charge of making these decisions, and I don't want to be voting for people who are going to be making war in an unrighteous, ungodly way, because by extension, they're representing me if I vote for them. I don't think that I'm so confident that there should be a separation of church and state where passages like this, like Deuteronomy 20, are excluded from the decision-making process in how we conduct war against Afghanistan, for instance. And I've talked about this for years. You can find a remarkable consistency. If you do go back to my On the Rocks blog essays from years ago, from, I don't know, four years ago now, three years ago, I believe it was one of my essays in defense of self-defense where I talked about... (sighs) What does the Bible say about fighting and war? I said at the time that the quagmire of Afghanistan seemed to me proof that what God is saying in Deuteronomy 20 is sound. You have in the case of the war in Afghanistan, for example, you have a country that was taken over decades ago by this radical fundamentalist medievalist Islamic sect, the Taliban, a religious, political, philosophical, cultural transformation took place. Prior to that, Afghanistan was fairly modern, similar to Iran or Persia, fairly modern. You could walk around an Iranian or Afghani city and feel fairly comfortable seeing people wearing Western clothes, driving on modern roads, civilization as we recognize it. And the Taliban was very threatened by this, and they overthrew the government, and they terrorized the people, and they drove anybody that was Western and Westernized and modern out because they saw them as an affront to Islam. And then you fast forward, and you have this Saudi in the person of Osama bin Laden. He's the son of a wealthy Saudi who takes up the call to drive the Soviets out of Afghanistan. And once the the Soviets are driven out, and they are successfully driven out because they can't hold the country either, Osama bin Laden turns his attention at a certain point on America because America, as he sees it, stands in the way of Islamic purity across the world. We'll just leave it at that without getting into the nitty-gritty details. Osama bin Laden uses Afghanistan and the safe harbor that the Taliban provides for him and Al-Qaeda, he uses Afghanistan as a pace for planning and executing operations, including but not limited to the September 11th attacks on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon. The United States of America responds in the wake of 9-11 by invading Afghanistan Imagine with me, if you can, an alternative history in which the United States of America, informed by Deuteronomy 20, had shown up outside of Afghanistan, park off the coast, hover in the air, call those guys up and say, here's your choices. You can surrender these malefactors to justice. We will take them into custody we will bring them to justice for having murdered in mass thousands of our people, destroyed our property, attacked us on our own soil, or we are going to take your country by force. If you do not surrender these men, then when we take your country by force, we're going to put every man to the sword. Now I realize in this alternative history, which horrifies my listener, probably, you say, well, wait a second, that's not fair. What about all the men that have been oppressed by the Taliban themselves? What about all the men who have gotten out of the country because they were so oppressed? Riddle me that. If you're okay with living under that regime, you may be just part of the problem. You're just a more passive part of the problem. It seems to be implied by this passage, Deuteronomy 20 seems to be a similar problem to Lot living in Sodom. Abraham and God have this back and forth negotiation about how many righteous men have to live in Sodom before you would spare the city rather than destroying it and the righteous who live within that city. God's solution is to get Lot out of there. So what could have happened is we could have been imitators of God as a country and had our national policy informed by such passages as that, which show us God's standard of righteous judgment, explicitly and implicitly, we could have said, hey, anybody that was not part of this, get out now. You have this many days to get out with your family. If you don't, or if you don't surrender, we're coming in and any man in the country in the city is going to be put to death that is your punishment that is your justice now you could say well that's not just that's not fair by whose standard by whose standard you could say well that you know this is for israel okay you're right so then we accept that this is at least righteous when god tells israel to conduct war this way and what's the alternative You know, one of the things that my reader who reached out back in January commented was he said, well, for that matter, let's not even just talk about the reef of Nanking. Let's talk about the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki by America. Men, women, and children, young, old, infirm, able-bodied, soldiers and civilians alike, all of them were hit by those atomic bombs. Was that righteous? Was that godly? Was that good that we did that? Now, set aside for a moment the arguments you'll reach for as quickly as I would to say, well, it was effective. It was brutal but effective. Set aside the utilitarian way of looking at it. How can we test our hearts? How can we test the actions that were taken there against Scripture? or by scripture. Because God's word is the standard. God's character is the standard. Was that the right call? Did we do the right thing? Or was that wicked? Now here we have another example, right? Japan. The alternative to dropping those bombs would have been to invade the country. And the calculations on lives lost were many, many, many times what ended up being the case with the dropping of those bombs. And so the At least idea was we are limiting the loss of human life by dropping these bombs. Now tell me this, why is it fair game when we think that way imperfectly from a point, a position of finitude, having partial knowledge, having a sinful nature within us, which might be pursuing expedience and even cruelty sometimes just for its own sake because we're wicked, Why is it fair game for us to make those kinds of judgment calls and say, well, yeah, but how many lives did we save? But it's not even a consideration on our part most of the time to think maybe that's what God was doing too, only doing it perfectly, only doing it without a sinful nature, with no blemish, no spot, no shadow, unchanging, fixed standard, fixed character. God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow forever, eternity past, eternity future, and the present, entirely consistent. It seems from the reading of this text that God is saying, this is a check. This is a way of mitigating death, death of more than just the body. What is it that Jesus says in the New Testament? Don't fear man who can only kill the body and then has nothing more that he can do to you. Fear God and kill the body, and also throw the soul into hell. Fear God. And what it is that God is trying to protect his chosen people from when he says, kill every living thing, everything that breathes in these cities of the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. What is it that he is trying to protect them from? Being taught to do all the same detestable practices which they have done for their gods, by which you would sin against Yahweh, your God. God is trying to protect his people, and by extension us, because the Messiah comes through his people. That's his promise. That's his plan. He fulfills that promise and plan, and we are all very much blessed by his being true to his word. How does that work if the whole nation starts sacrificing its children to Molech. Human sacrifice is one of the things, one of the prominent things that shows up when God specifically says, don't do what the people who live in this land right now do. When I drive them out, do not do the things that they did, like offering their children as human sacrifices to Molech. Don't do it. If you do that, I will have to take the land away from you as well. It's not racism, you see, when God is saying, here's my standard. I have chosen you as a people to keep my standard and for me to keep and bless so that you're an example for the entire world to see that I am holy. That's the whole idea here. It's not that Israel is holy. Anybody who thinks that is unacquainted, unfamiliar with the Old Testament and New Testament The point is not that Israel is holy, except that God makes them holy by dwelling in them and with them, by going before them to fight their battles. God is holy, and he is sanctifying his people. And even in our day, even though we are not in ancient Israel, I don't want us to have these biases, and I don't want us to have this extra-biblical standard by which we're judging God. That's very dangerous. That's very, very dangerous. We have to be on guard against that. And we also have to be on guard against avoiding God's word because it's convicting or because it's challenging, because it's hard. Lean into that. Man up, gird up your loins. God has a good purpose for every last jot and tittle, every last little I on a dot, every last cross on a T from beginning to end. Before we go, I want to key in on a couple of additional things that I think are interesting. When you go out to battle against your enemies and see horses, chariots, and people more numerous than you, do not be afraid of them. We should internalize that. And there is a principle here that is relevant for us, especially as our society becomes increasingly godless and it becomes increasingly unpopular to say, I stand on God's word and that's all I got. That is my standard. That is my fixed standard. This is the rock on which I build my house. What Jesus said. And Jesus upheld the Old Testament. There's no disparity. It's not like you have an old bad God who's being displaced by this new good God in Christ. He didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill the law. The law was not corrupt and evil. It was twisted by unscrupulous traditions, unscrupulous men, They tried to hijack it, commandeer it, usurp it. We ought not to be afraid when we are outnumbered when it comes to how popular society around us relates to God's word, how we relate to God's word. We ought not to be intimidated or afraid. Have no fear of men, Jesus says, who can only kill the body and then have nothing more that they can do to you. Fear God. Another point here is, You see, besides what the priest is supposed to say to the people before a battle. On the eve of battle, the priest is supposed to come out and say things to help the children of Israel be in the right frame of mind spiritually. And that's an important distinction. It isn't just, hey, here's this formula for waging war. Got it. Cool. Slow down. Here's a formula for preparing your hearts and your minds to understand the context. Who is God? Don't forget who God is. Very important. Extremely important. The only reason you're not afraid of a more numerous enemy is because you're remembering who God is. The only reason you're not despairing if they have better tech, they have bigger guns, is because you remember who God is. If God be for us, who can be against us? I love that line when Somebody in Abraham Lincoln's administration is asking him whether he thinks that God is on the side of the Union or the Confederacy. Lincoln says that that's the wrong question. I'm paraphrasing, so forgive me, but he says that's the wrong question. He says the question is not whose side is God on. The question is, are we on God's side? Because God is always right. That should be our mindset here. You skip down and... Officers are supposed to do a selection. This is a interesting parallel with the job that military recruiters have to do in our country. You don't just take anybody, or at least you didn't used to. You didn't used to take just anybody anymore. The more intersectional somebody is, the more the military wants them. I don't know if this is a perverse sort of let's prove how superior our technology is just by <laughs> rubbing it in our enemies faces that any of our people like we're going to we're going to have 3 year olds go out there in the name of inclusivity let's not be ageist let's go have 83 year olds go out there and fight our battles the battles of tomorrow in the name of inclusivity why stop at gender and sexuality let's open it wide up how about let's have people Join the military regardless of cognitive ability, regardless of emotional state, regardless of physical ability, all in the name of inclusivity. But it's so interesting to look at the standard by which certain men are going to be sent home. If they show up, they answer the call. Right? The call goes out. We need men. Battle is coming. Our enemies are arrayed against us. We need men. Muster the troops assemble, Avengers assemble. So the men show up and the officers are supposed to go down this list and ask these questions. The officers shall also speak to the people saying, who is the man that has built a new house but has not dedicated it? Who is the man that has planted a vineyard but has not put it to use? Who is the man that has betrothed to a woman and has not married her? Who is the man who is afraid and faint hearted? Let him go and return to his house so that he does not make his brother's hearts melt like his heart. Hoof. Hoof. Go home. You're scared. You're going to corrupt the rest of us. I can tell you're wavering. You don't need to be here. Go home. This is a very gentle way, by the way. A very gentle way of saying, you're a coward. Get lost. A very gentle way. You're afraid it's going to infect the rest of the men around you. We can't have that. We need them to be courageous and bold more than we need you to be here. Think of uh, Saving Private Ryan, the guy that stands at the bottom of the stairs while the other guy from the platoon is upstairs getting murdered by a German. We don't need that. It would be better for you to just go home. Let's nip that in the bud right now. But the other metrics, right? You've built a house, but you haven't dedicated it. You've planted a vineyard, but you haven't enjoyed the fruits of your labors. Your mind is going to be distracted. You're going to be thinking about that. You're going to have one eye on the door. You might not be afraid, but if it looks like the battle is turning against us, you might tuck tail and run because you want so badly to go home and dedicate your house before you die. You've got unfinished business. Your affairs are not in order. You're engaged to be married. You're not here right now. I need you to be here. I need you to have your head in the game. You're not here right now. You got one eye on the door. Go home. Just go home. It's fine. It's fine. We got this. That's so interesting. It's so, so interesting. It would be easy to look at this passage and think, boy, God is harsh. What we should be looking at this like is a fallen creation is harsh and God is reckoning with that in a very realistic, just, holy, and believe it or not, merciful way. There's a lot of mercy in this passage, in this chapter, believe it or not. You have to be looking for it. You have to be keeping an eye out for it. It might not be on the terms that you're familiar with, you're accustomed to, but it's there. Absolutely, there. One final thought. I promise. I promise this is the last one. We recently watched the musical Brigadoon with the kids. I watched Brigadoon with the kids. Lauren was trying to work on getting ready for the next school year, doing a lot of planning and ordering and scheduling and all that kind of stuff. But I watched this movie, Brigadoon, and it was. Funny, and I've had to I had to think about it because it's like, well, you know what? That's a good point. Uh, Eli was incensed because one of the main characters or the main character played by Gene Kelly is engaged. Movie starts out, he and his buddy, they're in Scotland hunting. And they hunt very well-dressed, by the way. That was one of the things we commented on. Is men used to be so smartly dressed. Even when they went hunting, they wore a suit and tie and uh, a nice hat. I never have been that dressed up to go hunting, but maybe I should. But Gene Kelly's character, Tommy, he is engaged to be married, and he's talking with his friend who's on the trip with him about how it just doesn't seem right. There's just something off about it. He doesn't think that he's supposed to maybe marry this gal. So he's thinking about breaking off the engagement. He's got doubts and misgivings. She's a beautiful woman, you later find out. Very sophisticated. He comes from New York City. She's very much a part of the nightlife and high society. And he's just not sure about it. Well, then he meets this Scottish lassie. And he falls in love with her. And they're dancing and he's obviously taken with her and she's taken with him. And Eli was very incensed. That's not right. He's engaged to be married to somebody else. That creep. That's interesting. NASB, one of the footnotes, says that a betrothed couple was considered legally married but did not yet live together. That's verse 7. Is the man that is betrothed to a woman. Who is the man that is betrothed to a woman and has not married her? let him go and return to his house, otherwise he might die in the battle and another man would marry her. It's interesting that God is more sensitive to that than we are. I had seen the movie Brigadoon years and years ago, never thought anything of it. I always thought, well, he's engaged, but he's not actually married. So it's not like he's leaving his wife for some other woman. He is engaged and he's decided that that's not going to work out. He's going to end up with this gal instead. He's going to marry this gal instead. What's the big deal? But actually, my son's attitude on this, it would appear, is more biblical than mine, possibly. At a minimum, I am very proud of his sense of high honor that if any of you listening, if you have a daughter who is interested in my son, my son is interested in, and they get engaged, you can trust he's got very, very high standards as far as uh, being faithful. So God bless him. God bless you. As always, thank you for listening. That's all we've got for this episode. We will pick this up again. There's a lot more to cover with regards to warfare, but not this morning. Let me know what you think. If I handled this passage rightly, I want to study to show myself an approved workman that need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And if you have A better understanding, a better grasp of this, if you could point me in the direction of some resources for better understanding it. By all means, do. And let's grapple with it. Let's rightly divide it. But got to run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless.